Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We are a non-profit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This presentation and many others are available through our online library at instituteofcatholicculture.org and on our ICC app. Whether you are looking for weekly Bible studies, in-depth courses, or talks related to the faith, you will find it at the ICC. Please check out our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. All are welcome to join our growing international ICC family. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or app. Our speaker this evening and throughout this book study earned his PhD in Systematic Theology from Ave Maria University. Dr. Jared Stout currently serves as the Director of Content for Exodus 90, and he is an instructor for the lay division of St. John Vianney Seminary. He's the author of several books, including how the Eucharist can save civilization, the primacy of God, the virtue of religion in a secular age, and to prove that academic theologians can have some fun as well, the beer option, brewing a Catholic culture yesterday and today. Dr. Stout blogs regularly at buildingcatholicculture.com and appears in various Catholic journals frequently, including Catholic World Report, Crisis Magazine, and Catholic Exchange. He's taught multiple popular courses for the ICC, including the Art of Catechesis, and, and uh, he led us through Theology 101 and 102. You can find those on our website as well if you want to catch up on those. He and his wife, Anne, have six children, and he is a Benedictine oblate. Please welcome for this, uh, for this book study, Dr. Jared Stout. Doctor, it's a blessing to have you back with us. Thank you, Father. Uh, I'm really happy to be back and you know, one of the things that always made me sad about teaching a class for ICC is that we only had 15 minutes for questions. And, you know, we got to the end of those questions. So like, that's all for today. And I'm like, wait, no, but there's there's so much more. I want to keep the conversation going. And so I'm really happy to be back for a book study in particular so that we can have more time discussing things together because I love that interaction. So it is a great blessing to be here and to talk about one of my favorite theologians who's really been a mentor to me, I wish it was directly, but only through his writing, right? Teaching me how to be a theologian. And this book in particular was pivotal, these, these three books, but especially this first volume, because I have to be honest that I was one of those people that he talks about in the foreword who were afraid to get into the Bible, right? When, when you know, he talks about historical critical methods and how they have like buried Jesus under all these different historical layers. You know, it, it really made me nervous as a theologian to kind of wade into scripture. I was like, well, well I'll, I'll leave that to the scripture scholars. And actually, my first study of the Bible, academic study, was in high school. And we had this textbook that went through the Old Testament. And it just happened time and time again. Every episode that we were going through in the book, it explained it all away. Now, this is what really happened. I mean, God didn't cause the plagues to come down into Egypt. They just had like some bad weather and, you know, and stuff like that. And, you know, there, there's a part, there's a lake in Egypt and the wind just blew really hard and whatever, you know, 
And so that's what I thought biblical scholarship was, that it was simply explaining things away and trying to come up with, you know, historical explanations for what really happened. And Pope Benedict talks about that. He actually says that a lot of people are, are turned away from the Bible for the same reason, is that they feel like they can't really understand it because the experts are telling them, well, that's not really what happened. You really have to get into the archaeology. You have to know the original languages uh, to be able to access the truth about what really happened. And, and guess what? The truth is what we tell you it is. Now, the irony of that, it's kind of like sola scriptura, right? The, the Protestant view of sola scriptura is that the scripture is the only authority, but that authority is accessed by your own individual reading of the Bible. And so what happens? Well, everybody has their own individual reading of the Bible. And at the end of the day, you don't really know what the text means and everybody has their own interpretation. That's exactly what happens with the historical critical methods of interpretation is that they tell you, well, you know, in order to know what the Bible really says, you have to follow these historical methodologies. So here, I'll tell you what really happened, but then they all disagree. All of the interpretations end up being contradictory. And so at the end of the day, you're left with nothing. <laughs> you, you read all these historical books and you say, well, gosh, they all contradict each other. So I guess we can't really know the truth. And Pope Benedict, as a theologian, was very concerned about this. And he said that, you know, Christianity, it's not a myth. We are talking about things that really happened in our historical. And the Bible itself, even though it is prophetic, right? And he talks about the nature of prophecy. Nonetheless, they are historical documents. And it's kind of funny, actually, when you read, you know, some of these historical texts, they say, oh, the, we can't trust the Bible historically because it's biased, right? It's a document of faith. So instead, we're going to read all these myths about Marduk, the Babylonian god. And that's how we're going to find out about the history of the ancient Near East. And you're like, oh, wait, 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 wait a second. We're going to read myths about Marduk. Who's that, by the way? Oh, I don't know. I, but somehow Marduk is going to tell us the truth of history, but the Bible can't. Well, actually, the Bible is one of the most important historical documents of the ancient world. And it was meticulously preserved for centuries. And it tells us a lot about history. And then, you know, there's silly things that biblical scholars say. Well, you know, in, in the story of Abraham, there's domesticated camels. And, you know, camels weren't domesticated for hundreds of years after the story of Abraham. And so the whole Bible is a lie. You know, this is this is what you get, you know, from these historical accounts. But actually, time and time again. We have found archaeology, and we've actually found very old records that refute a lot of the claims of these historical scholars, right, who say the Bible's not actually reliable. There's actually amazing things that have been discovered. Uh, you can look throughout the land of Cana, and you can find all of the cities mentioned in the book of Joshua being burned all at the exact same time. And actually, when you go to Jericho, you can actually see that all of the walls have collapsed except for one little section. Well, what's that one little section? Well, that's where Rahab was, you know, 
who helped the spies who came into the city. And the Bible says that all the walls collapsed except for the little place where she lived in the walls. Well, that's exactly what we found. But then scholars say, no, 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 no. Those remains are actually older than the conquest of the Holy Land, even though that conquest never happened because it was all made up. But nonetheless, you know, that conquest happened 200 years after the walls of Jericho collapsed because we know from the text of Exodus that the Exodus happened during the reign of Ramses II. Why? Because it talks about the Israelites building a storehouse at Ramses. But it, it didn't have that name until the, the reign of Ramses, even though that same area was an area where Semites lived and worked for centuries before it had that name, right? So really, the fact that they call that place Ramses, which it had later on, doesn't tell us anything about the timing of the Exodus. But you see, this is you know the difficulty that you wade into when you get into historical questions. Pope Benedict wants to cut through all of that. And what he actually wants to, to address for all of us, he's not writing for biblical scholars, he's writing for us. He asked the question, who is Jesus? And he, and he follows up with an, another important one, and what do you want from him? I actually want to turn to page 41. So this is, you know, kind of starting deeper into the reading. And even though he's talking about the, temp, the three temptations here, he jumps ahead to, to the passion because one of his key principles that he lays out is that you have to read the Bible as a whole, right? It's a canonical reading of the Bible. And, and he draws that term actually from an American Protestant biblical scholar, Brevard Childs, who kind of coins that term, a canonical reading of scripture, which Benedict refers to. And so this is a little bit less than halfway down the page here. He says, so the choice is between a Messiah who leads an armed struggle, promises freedom and a kingdom of one's own, right? And this is the choice of Barabbas. And on the other hand, this mysterious Jesus who proclaims that losing oneself is the way to life. Is it any wonder that the crowds prefer Barabbas? If we had to choose today, would Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Mary, the son of the father have a chance? Do we really know Jesus at all? Do we understand him? Do we not perhaps have to make an effort today as always to get to know him all over again? Well, what are the ways that we get to know him? I mean, Benedict is taking us through the gospels, but he's not doing biblical exegesis. What, what's exegesis, right? It's it's a line-by-line line explanation of the text. He's also not writing a work of systematic theology, right? You know, that's what he was trained to do. He was a dogmatic theologian and a fundamental theologian. A fundamental theologian is one who kind of explains the grounds and the credibility of faith. Those are his, his two fields, dogma and fundamental theology, He's not writing a scholarly work of theology. And that's why, you know, some theologians, uh, you know, some of my colleagues kind of say, oh, yeah, Jesus of Nazareth, that's not really a serious book. You know, and, and even Cardinal Martini, the, the Jesuit Cardinal Archbishop of Milan, Pope Benedict asked him to introduce the book at a press conference. And he said, and he was a trained biblical theologian, by the way, Cardinal Martini, he said, it's a beautiful little book, you know. 
<laughs> what did he mean by that? Right. You know, it's not a work of biblical exegesis. It's not a work of serious theology. What is it? Is it a spiritual text? Well, in a way, it's it's all of the above, right? I mean, he's drawing on biblical exegesis. He's drawing on dogmatic theology and, and even historical theology. It is a deeply spiritual book, but ultimately, it's an appeal. It goes back to this question, do we really know Jesus at all? As Joseph Ratzinger, a theologian and priest, he is writing to us. So even though he was writing this as Pope Benedict XVI, he says, no, no, I'm, I'm publishing this as Joseph Ratzinger. I'm making a personal appeal. This is not an encyclical. And, and, and I'm grateful for that. It's a, it's a lot more interesting than an encyclical. It's a personal appeal to you, to me, to, to all of us to think about Jesus again with fresh eyes. And it's not simply you know, spiritual reflections on the Gospels. Because he says, you know, we actually need that historical criticism, which I was kind of trashing, right? you know, it's undermining faith in, in many ways. He says, you know what, we need that. Because the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That happened in history. We don't believe in myths like Marduk, you know, things that you know, are just kind of nice stories that teach you lessons. The incarnation, the coming into the flesh of the Son of God, is something that we say happened in history. And therefore, we are approaching the Gospels as historical texts and texts that also need to be approached with faith at the same time. He wants to bring these two together, right? That, that is Benedict's secret sauce, if you will. <laughs> and that's what, you know, really influenced me. You know, so I, I had that textbook in high school. At the end of the year, after it kind of, you know, undermines the credibility of the Old Testament all year, I stood up in front of all my classmates and I ripped that book in half and I threw it in the trash. <laughs> and, and, and I left, you know, the, the historical study of the Bible behind for a time, right? And I just said, I'm just going to study theology. And Pope Benedict taught me that I made a mistake, that you can't just study Jesus, you know, by reading the catechism, right? You know, and, and for me, you know, I would say I approach the Bible simply as a text of faith to say, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to open up the Bible, I'm going to pray, it's going to strengthen my own faith in who Jesus is. Yeah, those historical, you know, critical scholars over there, they can just get their promotions at Harvard and keep themselves busy or whatever. But Pope Benedict taught me that I will actually be deficient in my understanding of the faith if, if I continue that approach, right? If, if I say, well, it doesn't matter what those scholars think, because actually we have a great gift today that Christians didn't have for most of the, of the history of the church. You know what I was just telling you, you know, about the collapse of the city of Jericho and only one little section of the wall remaining. Nobody knew that until like, what was it? 50, 60 years ago. That was literally buried for thousands of years. And, and the fact that we discovered all the other cities conquered by Joshua, that they were all burned at the same time as well. And that if you look, for instance, 
at the archaeological strata in Palestine, and you see what people ate, they ate pig bones. Well, they didn't eat the bones. Sorry, they ate pigs and they left the bones behind for hundreds of years. And all of a sudden, there's no pig bones. Well, you know, if you're reading texts like the ones I ripped up, they would say, the Israelites were made up later on by the Jews. They claimed they had this, this long history. And then we say, well, you know what? That's not true. We now know that all of a sudden, all these Canaanite cities burned. And at the same time, pig's bone, pig bones disappeared. Nobody actually knew that. And you could say, yeah, okay, but that doesn't really matter for my faith. Let me give you a better example that's more pertinent to our study. Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. How was that translated into Greek? The Christ, right? Christos. And so in English came to us as the Christ. So, you know, you hear Peter's confession in Matthew's gospel. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And you say, okay, what does that mean to say you are the Christ? That, <clears throat> is that like, did that become Jesus' last name? Jesus Christ, you know, first name Jesus, last name Christ. I don't, <clears throat> what is that? Peter was saying, you are the one who has come to reestablish the kingdom. You, you have come to reconstitute Israel. That's what he was saying. The word Messiah means the anointed one. Okay, but what, why would Jesus be the anointed one? Well, because kings and prophets and priests were all anointed in the Old Testament. And in particular, the title Messiah meant to, that you were the anointed son of David, that, that you were the one coming to be king. The Jews had real expectations at that time. There were many uprisings led by people who claimed to be the Messiah. And so we can look and say, well, well what did those people think they were doing? And if we look back at, at what Pope Benedict wrote here on page 41, well, they were looking for an armed struggle, promises of freedom and, and their own kingdom, their own political kingdom. And so when you look at the, the third temptation that Pope Benedict describes, it actually is trying to get Jesus to change his mission to fulfill what people wanted. They wanted someone who would feed them, who would perform miracles, and who would establish a kingdom over all other kingdoms. And that day, the Lord's mountain will be established as the highest mountain. All nations will stream towards it. Well, if you're looking for you know, an armed struggle and, and, and political freedom in your own kingdom, you might think, well, that means that when the Messiah comes— He's going to establish a political sovereignty. The word Messiah literally was revolutionary. When Jesus was executed, what did they claim? Well, he claims to be the Messiah who will destroy the temple and rebuild it. He was claiming authority over Jerusalem and in particular over the holiest site. And that led to his death. When the Jews bring him to Pilate, what do they say? Well, he said that he is a king and that people shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar, even though, of course, he, he said to, right? But these are the kinds of things that they were saying. He says that people shouldn't obey, obey Caesar because he's the king. It's all set up in political 
terms. These are historical events, and to understand them better, we do need to enter into the history. You do, you do need to know the languages. What does the word Messiah mean? Mashiach, right? You know, and, and what were the expectations of for somebody to use that title? The New Testament was, was written in Greek. What do these terms really mean? And, and there is so much that's obscured. Jesus is not a Jewish name. It's a Greek name. The, the, the Jewish name was Joshua or Yeshua, right? Joshua. And, and Joshua, to go back, you know, I was giving these examples of the conquests of the Holy Land. Jesus is the anointed king who comes to do battle. But it's not the battle that people are expecting, right? He does come to establish a kingdom. He does come to defeat his enemies. He does come to feed the people. But he has to change their expectations. Um, and if you don't understand the historical setting, it's difficult to know what Jesus is actually doing then, right? How he is fulfilling the desires and all of the prophecies of the Old Testament but in a deeper way that isn't a break. It, it actually is in continuity. If we continue, right, that was page 41. But if we continue to page 44, so that's the very end of the second chapter here. Uh, he kind of completes this thought. Earthly kingdoms remain earthly human kingdoms. And anyone who claims to be able to establish the perfect world is the willing dupe of Satan and plays the world right into his hands. Now, it is true that this leads to the great question that will be with us throughout this entire book, and we should say series of books because it's a trilogy, but he really conceived it as one work that he published in three parts, right? So throughout this work means throughout the, the entire thrust of these three volumes, what did Jesus actually bring? If not world peace, universal prosperity and a better world. What has he brought? Right? There's so many skeptics today who, as, as Pope Benedict says earlier in this chapter, they want to say, prove it to me. If you're the Messiah, then do this. Heal me. Feed me. Bring me the political solution that I'm looking for. Do all of these things. And that's why I, I led up with that second question. Who is Jesus and what are you looking for from him? Because this is something that Benedict came back to time and time again in this first reading. What has he brought? The answer is very simple. God. He has brought God. He has brought the God who formally unveiled, that's revealed, right? Unveiled his countenance gradually first to Abraham, then to Moses and the prophets, and then in the wisdom literature, the God who revealed his face only in Israel. And even though he was also honored among the pagans in various shadowy guises, it is this God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the true God whom he has brought to the nations of the earth. He has brought God, and now we know his face now we can call upon him. Jesus opens up the life of the Father to us. That is the kingdom. That is the solution 
that he brings to all of our problems. But we say, but Jesus, I'm hungry. But Jesus, I'm sick. And Jesus does feed people in the Gospels. And he does heal people in the Gospels. But that is a sign of what he really brings as the Messiah. You say, but, but, but Jesus, we wanted a kingdom. He says, but I have given you the kingdom of heaven. I know, but Jesus, we really just wanted to beat those Romans, you know? But I've given you the Father. And it doesn't matter in what age we live in. It whether whether you are a Jew wanting to overthrow the Romans, whether you live in medieval Christendom, or you live in modern-day America, we need the kingdom of heaven. We need the Father. And this is what Pope Benedict is trying to teach us. Benedict was very astute in speaking about the needs of the time, but he did so in a way that will be read and will be relevant a thousand years from now, if we're still around you know, in this world a thousand years from now, right? We're going to be reading Pope Benedict. He will be a doctor of the church, right? And, and that's actually how you know, I think somebody could be a doctor of the church, if they speak to the needs of their time in a way that is truly timeless. And that's what I would say about all of Benedict's works. Like he really understood our problem today. What is our problem? We need God. That was the problem in the past. That's the problem now. And I think we look around and say, I know, but we really need God now. That's true. Yeah, we really do. And that's why he said, okay, you know, even though here I am, Pope, right? You think of all the things that he could do as Pope. And he wrote books about Jesus. <laughs> He was a teaching pope. That's what he did. He went around the world and he taught. And do you know that John Paul II, I mean, by far, was like the most popular pope of the last hundred years. It's not even close, right? And yet more people came to Pope Benedict's audiences, even though Pope John Paul II was more popular, right? I mean, he would travel somewhere and there'd be millions of people showing up, right? But the people of Rome just showed up every Wednesday to hear Benedict talk because he was a great teacher. And every single one of those little Wednesday audiences, you know, usually they're probably written by some secretary or, you know, here you go, read this, you know? No, they are gold. Every single one of them, they're gold. Because I have not read anything written by Joseph Ratzinger that was not worth reading and rereading in rereading. I actually had a little four and a half page talk that I would read over and over again with principals and teachers in the Archdiocese of Denver when I worked out there. And I read that thing, I mean, dozens of times. And every time I read it, it was fresh. And I got new insights out of it every time. And that's how I know that Pope Benedict is such a great teacher. Because everything he says is very rich and full of life. And so we're going to be spending these weeks listening to him teach us about Jesus. It's, it's really a beautiful thing. And we're doing it somewhat in an odd way, right? Because we have a couple of weeks in, in the first volume that he put out. This is the main volume. It's the, by far the largest volume, and it contains the heart of his argument. So we're going to get started for two weeks there, and then we're going to stop. <laughs> and we're going to switch to the last volume 
on the infancy narratives. Why? Well, because it's Advent. So we should be reading that volume when it's Advent. And then after Christmas, we're going to come back and we're going to finish this volume. And we're going we're gonna to enter the second volume just in time for Lent. Right? And so we're going to be able to walk through the second volume on Jesus' Passion um, during that time. So this is a very liturgical book study. And Benedict would love that. <laughs> I want to tell you a little bit more about him, right? Because we're spending this time, you know, listening to him. And, you know, maybe you don't know that much about him. Some of you may know a lot about him. But, you know, I, I want to just tell you a little bit about him because I love him. <laughs> I never met him in, in my life. And, you know, I know I know I will now in the next life, please God. But, you know, even Protestant theologians and Orthodox theologians would say that Joseph Ratzinger was one of the greatest theologians of the last hundred years. They might say that more than some Catholics these days. I don't know. But, you know, actually, I, I was in a coffee shop in North Carolina recently, and I saw this guy reading a book uh, about Ratzinger's ecclesiology. And I went over and introduced myself to him. He was a Presbyterian pastor. Right. And that, that tells you something, you know, because he is read by a lot of people, you know, um, not just Catholics. One of the things that we didn't really know until recently, you know, Peter Seewald, who is a German journalist, uh, came out with it with a two volume um, kind of definitive biography of Pope Benedict recently. And it's, it's worth reading. He's not George Weigel in the sense that he doesn't he can't take us as deep in his analysis of Benedict. But it really does give us just a good portrait of Benedict's life. And he showed us that Ratzinger was actually very influential at the Second Vatican Council as a young priest, but it was largely behind the scenes. And that's why people didn't really know about it. He was the theological expert of the Cardinal Archbishop of Munich, Cardinal Frings. And, and you know, Frings was actually, you know, really instrumental in a lot of key um, developments at the council itself, even like throwing out a lot of the initial drafts and kind of reorganizing the council. And Ratzinger was behind uh, a lot of what Frings did. And for instance, we didn't know until recently that he drafted Dei Verbum, the Second Vatican Council's document on sacred scripture, and he had a hand in, in, some, in drafting some of the other documents as well. And so he was, as, as a young priest, he was in the what was called the progressive camp. Before Vatican II, he said, you know, theology's gotten kind of sterile. We're teaching out of all these old manuals. They're not addressing the needs of the time. Um, they're not actually very biblical. They're not bringing us back to the church fathers. They're based on the theology of St. Thomas, but they don't really bring us even into the theology of St. Thomas very well. He said, we, we need to, to turn theology kind of upside down and, and start over again. And so he was part of the camp that really wanted a lot of change. And then after Vatican II, people started calling him a conservative. And he later on, he said, I didn't change at all. And what happened is that the progressives after Vatican II, ended, they, they just used Vatican II as a springboard to just kind of go way beyond Vatican II and the church's teaching. Um, and they really wanted to revolutionize theology in a way that went way beyond any kind of renewal or reform. And so Ratzinger ended up having a, a deep split with Karl Rahner and some of the other major theologians of Vatican II that led to the founding of a major journal called Communio. Um, and so 
he became a key figure in that school of theology. And so it was very much along the lines of the Ressourcement movement. Let's go back to the sources of theology, but let's use them to address the needs of the time, right? So it was both a looking back and, and a looking forward. And, you know, compared to some of the other figures in that movement, I think we can say that Ratzinger struck a very good balance of, of going back to the fathers. He himself was very Augustinian in his theology. Um, and so he was able to be very deeply rooted in the church's tradition, but to always feel fresh. Like he had a new angle on things that really was just unpacking what the church has always said. That's one of the, the brilliant things about Ratzinger is finding a new way to say something that speaks to people today, but it's not a radical break with things like the, the way the progressives went after Vatican II, where they thought they had to say whatever the world was saying. And Ratzinger, after Vatican II, really assumed a, a prophetic voice of calling people back to God. He said, what we need is not the latest thing. And it's not like a political solution, like the liberation theology crowd. It's not a political solution to our problems today. We need a spiritual solution. And as his theology developed, it got more and more deeply rooted in the church's liturgy. So, you know, the spirit of the liturgy, which came out in the year 2000, um, in, in many ways, I think was a great capstone of his theology before he became Pope. And actually, it's Jesus of Nazareth, which became um, the great, I, I would say, then crowning achievement to say, even though it's not as rigorously the theological as his other works, but to say prophetically, this is what we need right now, to look upon the face of Jesus anew and to enter deeply into the scripture through what he calls a hermeneutic of faith. A hermeneutic is a way of interpretation. So you'll hear that term come out in our discussions. A biblical hermeneutic, a means of interpretation, um, which is theocentric, right? It's rooted primarily in God, but but to even specify that more deeply, he says it's Christocentric, that we read the whole Bible in light of Christ, and that the purpose of everything in the Bible is to lead us to Christ. A hermeneutic that is ecclesial. And I think one of the, the brilliant things that he says, which is absolutely essential, is that the church is one of the subjects of Scripture. And so we have a human author behind all of the books of the Bible, right? You know, so we have many human authors writing the Bible. We believe that they receive divine inspiration. And so we, God is the primary author, you know, uh, working through the human authors. But Benedict says there's a third subject, and this is on page Roman numeral 20. That third subject is the people of God. And I think that this is related to his deep liturgical insights. Why did God reveal himself? So that we could know him and be in, in a covenant relationship with him. How do we express our covenant relationship with God? Divine worship. How did the Jewish people use the Old Testament, right? The, the Hebrew Bible. In worship. It was for the worship of God. How does the church 
use the Bible for the same purpose. That is actually the primary place for Christians to receive biblical revelation. It's within the liturgy. So let's read this little section here because I think it's profound. So this is the bottom of uh, that last paragraph on page Roman numeral 20, XX, right? He says, neither the individual books of Holy Scripture nor the Scripture as a whole are simply a piece of literature. That's a good starting point, right? <laughs> the Scripture emerged from within the heart of a living subject, the pilgrim people of God, and lives in the present Right, the Bible is not an, an historical artifact simply of the past, right? And lives within this same subject. One could say that the books of Scripture involve three interacting subjects. So this is important for us to keep in mind. First of all, there is the individual author or group of authors to whom we owe a particular scriptural text. But these authors are not autonomous writers in the modern sense, they form part of a collective subject, the people of God, right? They came from within the people of God, and they were speaking to the people of God, from within whose heart and to whom they speak. Hence, this subject is actually the deeper author of the scriptures. And yet, likewise, this people does not exist alone. Rather, it knows that it is led and spoken to by God himself who, through men and their humanity, is at the deepest level the one speaking. The connection with the subject we call people of God is vital for Scripture. On one hand, this book, Scripture, is the measure that comes from God, the power directing the people. On the other hand, though, Scripture lives precisely within this people, even as this people transcends itself in Scripture. And I think that's important, is that the Bible finds its home within the community of the church. That is where it belongs. And, and that is, according to Benedict, the only place where it can be properly interpreted. Right? You could be an atheist and you could understand the language of Hebrew very well. And you could understand the archaeology of ancient Palestine very well. But could you understand the meaning of the text? Right. And ultimately, that's what biblical interpretation aims at. St. Thomas Aquinas said that all interpretation aims for the literal sense. Literal comes from the word letters. Right. What, what do the letters of the text mean? The words themselves mean to know that you must have faith because otherwise you cannot listen to the interaction of these three subjects here. Right? And so he says that, this is on now Roman numeral 23, so just two pages later here. He says, yet if we instead take this conviction of faith as our starting point for reading the text with the help of historical methodology and its intrinsic openness to something greater, they are opened and they reveal a way and a figure that are worthy of belief. So he's essentially saying that even with all of that historical knowledge, you cannot know the meaning of the scripture without faith, and he will bring them together. Because according to what he's telling us here, we need both to know Jesus. Why? Now, this is back on the previous page, Roman numeral 22. 
He says, because in these texts, I wanted to portray the Jesus of the Gospels as the real historical Jesus in the strict sense of the word. Because these scholars, they literally initiated a search for the historical Jesus. Right? They said, you know, we need to dig down all these layers. There was actually something called the Jesus Seminar where they would take votes. They, 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 all these different scholars would assemble in the room and they would vote on whether or not they could all agree on something being historical. And it was, I mean, like a couple of things from the in all, entire gospels that they could all agree on were probably historical. <laughs> so this search for the historical Jesus, Benedict says, does not find the historical Jesus. It finds some figment of the scholar's imagination. The gospels arose out of real encounters of the disciples. They really were with Jesus. They really did know him. They really did walk in his footsteps and hear him teach and see him perform miracles. They talked with him. They knew him. And moved by the Holy Spirit, they recorded those experiences. Now, something else to keep in mind is that the evangelists were not trying to write history as we know it. And, and here's one example that Benedict alludes to in our reading. And, and I will use Ratzinger and Benedict interchangeably, right? Because he published these volumes when he was Pope Benedict XVI, but he put his name, Joseph Ratzinger, on the volumes. I'll, I'll use both interchangeably. But Benedict, even in the temptation narratives, he says that Luke and Matthew put them in a different order, where they both start uh, with a temptation about bread. But then one moves to the, the, the temptation at the temple, throwing himself off the temple and ends with the political kingdom, whereas the other order moves to the political kingdom and ends with the temple. Right. Oh, is that a contradiction? Well, it would be an historical contradiction if one of the evangelists said, and then the second temptation, and by that, I mean chronologically, the one that followed from the first temptation and certainly did not happen before the third temptation, which was this, you know, that would be a contradiction, right? Where they're, they're absolutely saying that in time, it only happened this way. They're not saying that. Right? And this is where the human authors come in. You know, we could say, well, you know, they they remembered it differently. Well, I mean, Luke wasn't actually a disciple of Jesus, right? He was a disciple of Paul, but but Matthew was a disciple of Jesus. And the text doesn't even say that the disciples were there, by the way, but um, was there a problem in memory? We'd say no, that the evangelists were able to use their own creativity and sensibilities in style, right? I mean, the all the books of the Bible are not written in the exact same voice, right? You know, there are different genres, and you can see that Luke has a different, very different style from John and his gospel, right? And so they are creating a different emphasis by changing the order of things, and that is not necessarily contradictory. What's another example that, well, we'll see this example next week, um, in the Beatitudes, in Matthew's gospel, it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And Luke says, blessed are the poor. Well, did, did Luke give us half a sentence? 
Um, or did Jesus actually say the Beatitudes in two different ways? You know, I mean, it wouldn't be surprising that if Jesus is going from town to town, he might have a similar message. And I even know as a teacher that I could give the same lecture three times. I'm not going to say the exact same thing both times, you know. And, you know, I might tell a story one time that I don't tell the next time. And I might change the order of my lecture, you know, and whatnot, you know. So they were not trying to write a chronology as we know it. You know, when, when we value history today, we say, I, I want like a photographic snapshot. Rather, the evangelists were trying to help us as believers to come to know who Jesus is. We say in a, in a way... It was a um, a hagiography. What is that? That's like a, a holy writing, a, a kind of biography of a holy person, right? That is meant to do something, right? It is meant to get us to respond to this text in faith, that we too will become a disciple. The gospels are all invitations to us so that we too can learn from Jesus, and so does that mean if they're not written as historical narratives as we know it today, right, does that mean that they're not reliable historically? And there's actually, there's a scholar, Richard Bauckham, who, who has written a number of books, but on the way in which we see the Gospels as reliable eyewitness uh, accounts um, and the way that oral testimony works. And a lot of people today would say oral testimony is not reliable. Well, I mean, hey, it is in court, right? Um, but beyond that, um, we can actually get deep into the way that the Gospels work as a preservation of memory, even liturgical memory, right? That the memory of Jesus is preserved by his disciples and deliberately handed down. There was a church before the Gospels existed. We have to remember that, right? And so the church, and this is what Benedict is saying about this passage about the subjects, the church in some way is the author of the gospels, right? Because all of the evangelists were writing from within the church as leaders within the church um, to preserve the memory of Jesus and to hand it down to us. And there's even some evidence that, that they were written for a liturgical and catechetical context for proclamation. And so we have to understand that that is their genre not to try to give us a photographic glimpse of this man, Jesus, who claimed to be God, right? um, but as a liturgical and sacred memory um, that we could enter into from within the church. You, you drop the New Testament into the hand of a biblical scholar, right? And they're going to analyze it as something that is dead, right? As an artifact from 2000 years ago. But when you go to Mass and you hear the gospel proclaimed, it is alive. It transcends time, and it is meant to make Jesus present to you. And that is what it does. And it is historical, right? Because it does come from the historical encounter that the disciples had with Jesus. And it does even bring us back into the ministry and the saving deeds of Jesus. So the gospels are amongst the most powerful things ever written. Now, this is my general overview. And so in our discussion next week, we can feel free to continue the discussion of our reading from this week, right? The reading schedule is meant to keep us on a good pace. And I wanted to prioritize 
really setting out the vision of what Pope Benedict wanted to accomplish and how that fits within his general kind of mission as a theologian and leader within the church, that I think will help us to enter into a discussion of the particular chapters. So um, in our discussion now, feel free to get into any of the details of the chapters, but know that we can also return to them. And I might even give another introduction of some of them um, next week as well. Super. Thank you, Doctor. What a great uh, what a great start to what is going to be a months-long journey. I hope that everybody is ready for the long haul, that you've got your books and uh, have started cranking away with that reading plan. Let's do this one to start with, Doctor, um, <laughs> kind of looking at the playing field. Bob asks, do you see a value to writings of people such as Ray Brown? Uh, yes. And you know, what's funny is that Cardinal Ratzinger came to America and gave a talk. Um, I think this was sponsored by First Things, actually. He gave a talk on biblical interpretation. Um, and that talk also has, has deeply influenced my approach to the Bible. And Ray Brown stood up and refuted him. <laughs> so they, they disagreed. But um, I think, you know, Pope Benedict would absolutely say yes. And even if you look at his sources... He's attuned even to believing Jews, believing Christians who are Protestants and believing Catholics. But, you know, some of his sources would be from people who are who are not approaching the text through the lens of faith. Um, and so Ray Brown, he has some good insights. He's worth reading. But this is what I would say. Don't learn your hermeneutics from him. Right. So hermeneutics is the overarching principles that you bring to your interpretation. I would say learn those from Pope Benedict. But if, if you want to like, you know, he has a famous book on the Gospel of John, right? So if you want to get into the details of the Gospel of John, that Brown's commentary may not even be the best one, but it's worth reading and you'll learn things from it. But then you want to be able to take those nuggets and then integrate it into a broader ecclesial kind of reading of the text. On a methodological uh, angle, how do we engage with historical scholarship seriously without falling into the errors of the critical historians? Because clearly history is important to understand the context, but how do we avoid that in our in our study and reading? I think it's good to talk to people who have a little bit more experience. I wouldn't recommend, you know, just going and, and buying the first book that you find. You know, in terms of the Old Testament, I really recommend Brant Petrie and John Bergma's introduction to the Old Testament. And you can even look at their sources and the people that they're that they're discussing in the text if you want to go deeper. But that is just such a great introduction to the books of the Old Testament. I highly recommend that. You know, um, Baker, which is a Protestant press, actually has a, a great uh, commentary, a Catholic commentary on the New Testament which is uh, very reliable. Um, and actually Brazos, uh, another Protestant press, has a, a series of theological interpretations of the books of the Bible, which have a lot of very preeminent Catholic scholars contributing to it. So, you know, I, I think I would start with, you know, books that are published by like Ignatius Press and and with other recommendations or books that you see you know, that other scholars like Scott Hahn are, are using in, in some of their work um, and then move out from there. And then I think once you kind of get like a good grasp of things, you could be a little bit more adventuresome and 
to get into some of you know the archaeology. You just have to know what you're getting into and not expect more. And if something seems fishy, well, then talk to somebody else or read about it from a more reliable source. That's great. Yeah. And 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 having the experience of a guide like that can help you interpret even like when a new archaeological find comes out or you have a new piece of information. You know, if, if there isn't a commentator or a scripture scholar who has picked that up, you're at least in in the habit of approaching that the right way. And it's amazing. There's new archaeological discoveries all the time that are reinforced in the Bible. A, a recent one is finding the altar of Joshua on Mount, Mount Ebal, you know. Wow. Uh, and so it's it's just amazing the, the kinds of things that are that keep coming out. Marie, appear on screen. Go ahead and unmute yourself and ask your question. Dr. Stout, I, I really was very impressed with the richness of what you've introduced to us and, and several comments. <laughs> Really, the vocabulary that you're using struck me. I'm not asking something specific about them, just to center on where my questions are. Uh, you mentioned the expression of liturgical memory, and you also made a comment about oral tradition. I, I believe greatly in oral, oral tradition. I did research about my family in a little town. My family's from Bethlehem. And oh, wow. I found that the oral traditions especially of the women of Bethlehem, were incredibly informative and not in the history books, not. And so I, that struck me. Now, this is really my question. Liturgy is encounter with the Lord, reading the Bible, getting to know Jesus through these books is encounter also. Uh, but the, the role of liturgy my experience of liturgy in my everyday life, I see that as a door to open my relationship and understanding on a theological and methodological level as well. But I feel like I'm scratching the surface, and I wonder if you could just elaborate on, on that a bit. To, to open the door for me to be able to get more out of the books, I feel like I'm not ready to mine what's in these books yet. Well, I, I think it's it's hard to say that there would be anything that you could do before continuing to read the books, right? Because I think that what we will see is that Benedict will instruct us even as we go along. And I'm thinking of the example of the baptism, like that chapter, and he's linking it um, to the Feast of the Epiphany. And he's talking about our own celebration of baptism, um, for instance, or he's talking about the division of the loaves in relation to the first temptation, right? And he says that the ultimate division of the loaves is that Jesus feeds us in the Eucharist, that the bread that he broke at the Last Supper is still being divided for us, right? And, and so we see that the realities of the gospel are living realities to us in the liturgy. And I, I would say just to be attentive to that, but that's an amazing example. The, the devil says, turn these stones into bread because you're hungry. And there was an expectation that the Messiah would feed the people because he's going to be like a new Moses and God rained down bread from heaven for Moses. And so will God do the same thing now? And the devil was prompting, he's at, trying to say, act on that. But Jesus does do it, right? He does divide the loaves and he does feed the people. But even that, it's not it yet, right? So he refuses the temptation. 
He enters into the reality of it on his own terms. But even that, the miracle of the dividing, was only a sign of the liturgical reality that we will experience in the breaking of the bread, which is what Benedict says is the ultimate multiplication of the loaves for us. You see all those layers, right? And I think just so pay attention to what Benedict is doing, I think, to be able then to enter into that liturgical hermeneutics more deeply. Excellent. Doctor, this uh, this next question, again, kind of keeping things broad at, at, at the outset here. John asks, where might our imagination fit into Ratzinger's method? Uh, for, he gives the example. He does mention, he says, imagine the reaction to John the Baptist. Well, I, I this is what I would say to that, that this reading ultimately should help us to do Lexio Divina. Pope Benedict actually said as Pope, I think on two occasions, that Lexio Divina could lead to a new spring, a new springtime of the spiritual life in the church. So he believed in the power of scripture to really open up this encounter with God that we were just talking about, that Maria that Marie Louise mentioned. Um, and so I would simply say that. You can read this book in a very meditative way. And to go farther than that, use this book to enter into the Gospels. And as you're doing it, pay attention to those details. This is where the imagination comes in. If, if you're trying to prompt me to speak about Ignatian meditation, I'm not going to. But uh, what I will say is that Benedict um, is encouraging us, I think, to attend to every little detail. And he's, he's going to draw, as we see already, right, he's going to continue to draw on the exegesis of the church fathers. Because if the church is one of the subjects of the Bible, then that means we, we not only have a canonical reading of the Bible itself, but we have an ecclesial reading that goes throughout all of church history. And so he's modeling that ecclesial reading by reading the Bible with the church fathers. We actually hold that when the Bibles, when the church fathers are unanimous in their interpretation of the Bible, that that's an expression of the sacred tradition of the church. And the church fathers really do attend to all these little details, and they draw a lot of meaning out of them, and Benedict is going to do the same. And so just as I mentioned that he can teach us how to do a liturgical reading of the Bible, I think he can teach us how to use our imagination to really attend to all the little details. If he's saying, imagine how the crowd's reacting, right? Now, he is saying that we should really put ourselves into the text as we attend to these details to immerse ourselves so that we can encounter them in this living way. I'm not big, that's why I'm not commenting on Ignatius, but I guess I'll comment on it by not commenting on it. But I think when the, when the imagination starts going a lot farther than the text is where I would say, come back to the text, right? Stay rooted in those details if you're if you're meditating and you're trying to encounter Jesus. That's my own advice. You can take it for whatever it's worth and, and you can talk to your own spiritual director. <laughs> Pope Benedict himself does seem to kind of do that when when he asks, where was it? It was, it was uh, you had about Dante questions too. Have we gone no, too he far? Says, yeah, yeah. Has our has our treatment of the church fathers taken us too far away from the text? He says, "Yeah, he said, no, <laughs> it hasn't." <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. 
That's great. Yeah. You've mentioned this a couple of times, you know, the idea of the three subjects. John wrote in asking, just to clarify, you specifically used the, the Gospels as an example of coming from the church. Um, does this method extend to the Old Testament as well? We're talking about all of Scripture yeah. here. Yes, he says yes, um, in that, you know, obviously the synagogue is at the very end of Jewish history. So all the books of the the Old Testament, maybe except for wisdom, would kind of predate the, the synagogue time. But yes, he says that's why he uses the term people of God and not the church, even though the, the church is the people of God in the world right now. But absolutely, that God revealed himself not to generic individuals. He says God revealed himself to Israel, even though there were particular people acting as prophets. But he says that they came out of the people of Israel and were speaking to the people of Israel. And we are in continuity through the church. We're in continuity with the people of God throughout all of history. Did I see a hand on screen? Sorry, Nancy. Yes, go ahead. Uh, can you say the authors of the um, introduction to the Old Testament that you mentioned? Yeah, it's published by Ignatius Press. So you would be able to um, find it on their website, but it is uh, Brant Petrie, which is P-I-T-R-E, and John Bergsma, which is B E. R G S M A. And they are both top-notch Catholic biblical scholars in the United States right now. I recommend everything that they've both written. A great example of deeper context for the gospels that we can get out of historical study is John Bergma's book on, on Jesus and the Dead Sea Scrolls. It is a rich and fascinating book, but it really does give good insights, well, for John the Baptist, but even for understanding some of the context for Jesus' ministry. Because Pope Benedict, in the foreword, I believe, it could have been the introduction, but I'd have to check, but I think it was the foreword, where he talks about the, um, the, the Jews, the different groups of Jews at the time of Jesus, right? You have the Sadducees, who are the ruling class, um, and who are somewhat skeptical. They only accept the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. You have the Pharisees who basically, they become kind of rabbinical uh, Judaism that has survived to this day, right? But they're really focused on living the law to the fullest. Um, and then you have the Zealots who are doing assassinations of, of, of the cooperators uh, with Rome um, at the time. Um, and you have... Um, then also the Essenes, and they're not mentioned by name in the Gospels, but there, there are a couple of places where you might kind of see them coming in, but um, they, they're actually fascinating for even understanding some of the particular expectations for the Messiah that Jews had. And one of the things that Bergsma mentions, and I, I think he's right on here, is that Jesus, you know, basically is dismissive of the Herodian temple that's constructed, right? And that's a position that the Essenes held very deeply. And Jesus is saying that he himself is the new temple, right? And so the Essenes were looking for a Messiah who would be the Davidic king, but also the high priest together. Um, and so Jesus, you know, is that new priest in the line of Melchizedek, right? This kingly priest. And and, and even the, the whole mode of baptism, there's, there's a lot of evidence, I think, of John the Baptist, at least having spent time with the Essenes, and Benedict actually mentions that in our reading. 
And so you see even the way that he does baptism may have come out of his experience with the Essenes. And then Jesus, of course, himself, you know, builds upon that. So anyway, that's one example that knowing the history of the time really does help open up uh, the Gospels to us. Excellent. Uh, this next question here, getting into the text a little bit. So page 10 talks of, G- of Jesus uh, at 30 years old and attaining the age that conferred a right to public activity. Uh, what is the meaning of this? And, and let me just attach another question from James uh, that's kind of related to that discussion because uh, we're in that section. He, he asks, do we allow Jesus to grow in knowledge and wisdom or do we expect him to come loaded with infused faith and grace? What, what is his transition here into public ministry uh, for his role you know, as a man and, and his interior understanding of his, uh, of his commission and mission? Well, yeah, that we that he grew in wisdom is revealed to us, right? Um, and the infusion of knowledge also seems certain from the Gospels, right? Because without infused knowledge, Jesus wouldn't know things that were outside of his experience. But obviously he does, you know, <laughs> uh, including the Father. So, you know, uh, even Jesus as man knows the Father. So I think we have to say, yes, Jesus grew in knowledge and wisdom, because he had a human intellect, right? So human intellects learn things. And this is fascinating. You know, God created water. God never saw water with physical eyes until God became man, right? You know, now he knew water better than we do, you know, by making it. And he he could see it, obviously, um, in his perfect knowledge of all things. But, you know, Jesus knows things from a distinctly human perspective as man, like the word becoming flesh. So we say, yes, he learned things. And yes, he had infused knowledge. Um, But now the whole thing about the age of 30 um, is that you couldn't become a rabbi until you reach that age, right? So Jesus is like bar mitzvah is actually the finding in the temple, right? Where he has that kind of separation from mom, um, where he now has the first stage of entering into manhood. Right, so you see these different phases, right? He's a child. He has the kind of rite of passage, the coming to age with the finding in the temple. But he's a young man at that point, right? So even in the Middle Ages, you'd kind of go off out of home and apprentice at, at the age of 14, right? So he was a little bit younger than that, but you kind of see the same idea. But you're at that apprentice stage for a while. Um, and that includes even in learning, right? You had the, the synagogue schools, when people say that the apostles were all illiterate, that's laughable because young Jewish boys all went to synagogue school at this historical time period to learn to read the Torah. They did not grow, they did not speak Hebrew. They spoke Aramaic, which is a Syriac dialect, and they had to learn to to read Hebrew, and they did, you know. So the apostles were not illiterate fishermen, as they say. That's you hear it's amazing how often you hear that. And once again, you need knowledge of the historical context. So all the boys would go through that. There was actually farther schools. And so you could actually then train to become a rabbi. You would go to an advanced synagogue school, and then you would actually apprentice with a rabbi. And then at the age of 30, you could become a rabbi. You could become a teacher. And so Jesus um, becomes of age to then be able to teach in public at the age of 30, which, of course, he did not... Um, go through all of those synagogue schools. And we know that because he presented himself as a rabbi, but part of the reason 
the Pharisees are mad at him is he didn't go through the system. And he says, oh, but I was taught. I was mentored, but it was by the father. What? You know what? You know? <laughs> Relate, related to this, you know, his transition into his public ministry, could you talk a little bit then about his baptism and, and the transformation that does seem to happen there? But Benedict does warn against, you know, seeing it as a, a psycho, doing a, a psychological study, you know, and, and drawing the conclusion that he's coming to a new realization of himself. But what's going on here related to that? Right. Yeah. And, and of course, there's an ancient heresy and Be- Benedict knows all about ancient heresies. Um, and, and you can take that farther. The ancient heresy like of adoptionism would say that Jesus was actually constituted son of God at the moment of his baptism. Um, and that's when the anointing happens. So rather, we would see the baptism as a manifestation of his anointing in the Holy Spirit to others, right? I mean, this is the father. We're talking about mentorship and being taught, right? You know, he says, I only say what the father taught me to say, right? The father, in a sense, is the, the real rabbi. I just say what he taught me to say. But the father basically says, he's ready. I taught him. You know, he, he is my beloved son. Listen to him, Right. So he's telling everybody, this is the one who is sent to teach you. Listen to him. So it's, it is an, igno- an inauguration of his public ministry and a manifestation that he is the Messiah, that he's not anointed by a prophet. Right? You want to think about all the, you know, the kings of the Old Testament, right? You know, David is anointed by Samuel, the prophet. Jesus is not anointed by John the Baptist, actually, right? He's anointed by the Father. Now, he's anointed, you know, not simply at that moment, but but this is this manifestation that you are the Christ. You are the one who is anointed by the Holy Spirit. You are the true king. The fact that it happens at the baptism, Pope Benedict really tells us that it's showing what kind of Messiah he is. That he's not coming in a way that kind of is the showy proclamation of power. It's actually solidarity with sinners, right? So it's a manifestation of weakness. I'm allowing myself to be plunged into death because waters are are the symbol in the Old Testament of chaos, uh, of even of death itself, right? I'm going down into the waters to die, And this is how I am the Messiah, right? This is how I am anointed as ruler within the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of God. And by coming back up, right, there's a reconstitution of life in him. So what did Benedict say? Because he has shown solidarity with us and going down, we can then express solidarity with him as he goes up. And then that's the moment in which the father says, this is my beloved son. The one who has come down is the one who will go back up, right? Paul even says that. Who can go up except for the one who came down? It's the baptism, right? And so the baptism is is a great, it's, well, what does he say? The epiphany, which is the feast of the, the theophany in the East is not about the star, right? That's what we focus on in the West. But in the East, it's about the baptism because that, the word epiphany or theophany means this kind of manifestation. That's the manifestation of Jesus' identity. And it's fitting that that's the first chapter that Benedict has for us, 
because he says, I want to write these books because I want to teach you who Jesus is. And we're going to start with the Father's proclamation of who Jesus is. So I saw somebody put in the chat box, why did he write the infancy narratives at the end? And he says it's because he felt an urgency to get into the work, and he wanted to dive right into the heart of it. And he even says, well, I'll, I'll come back to that if I have time. Thanks be to God, he did have time, you know? Um, but he starts with the baptism, I think, for a reason. And in my my study guide, I said, you know, it's this probably the same reason that Mark begins his gospel there as well. That's awesome. Let, let's jump back to uh, his introduction for this this question. Um, Pope Benedict writes on page two, um, he mentions the problem of trying to have a window into the future and uh, that these various ways of seizing control of the future is an abomination in God's eyes. The way he describes it, you know, these forms of magic sound a lot like, uh, well, he's setting up sin, right, um, in in various ways and, and this fundamental shift do you see a connection to our relationship with technology in this day and age? What would have been, you know, magic then? Um, are, are we similarly trying to seize control of the future uh, oftentimes? So we'll say this. I mean, you go all the way back to the fall. What was it grasping after, right? It, it, it's a knowledge that has been hidden. And so God says that that he is the one who re- will reveal to Adam and Eve what is good and evil but they grasp after that. They want to know it for themselves. And in a way, that is what idolatry then is based upon, right? It's an attempted manipulation of God to to know and control the future. Is technology our own attempt to know and control the future? Yeah. (laughs) Yes, that's a softball pitch. But I mean, and especially I think now with with artificial intelligence, which is an oxymoron, by the way, um, this is not intelligent at all. But I think that this is, it's going to get to frightening levels, right? Of, as a kind of idolatry. Do we idolize technology um, as an attempt to manipulate and control the future? Yes, but actually for the present as well, right? That that we want to, to be able to control our own destiny, to control how we feel, to control our health, um, to basically to be able to recreate a world according to our own image. And ben- Benedict, I mean, he, he, I mean, I love his writings, but um, he has um, great writings about modern culture and even technology, um, like Christianity and the crisis of culture. Um, I might be messing up that title a little bit, but anyway, that's one of my favorite books of his. And um, that's something that he was very attuned to. He he even said, now, something I didn't get into with his biography, right? He lived and suffered through, you know, the Nazi takeover of Germany. His father went into early retirement, moved out into the countryside to get away from the Nazis. He himself was forced out of sem- seminary into an anti-aircraft unit at a certain point of desperation. But he even said, when you look at Auschwitz and the, the numbers, um, that are put on, you know, onto the uniform. So the reduction of a person to a number is the mark of the beast. So he, he's saying beyond the actual number 666, he says the beast is known by a number um, because it's obscuring the name, right? The God-given identity. 
And he connects that then to technology is that, you know, what is technology? It's a, it's a bunch of ones and zeros, right? And so it's it's a re, it's a reconstituting the order of creation in a numerical way um, that tries to play at being God, and which ultimately dehumanizes us. It's such a fascinating insight that he leads with. I mean, it's it's uh, so pervasive. I think it'd be easy for us to wash over that that insight that you just kind of expanded there. And uh, but we have to hold up a mirror to ourselves. Um, I mean, his whole his whole introduction, everything that you've just laid out for us, this idea of approaching uh, approaching the Gospels and the whole Bible uh, from the perspective of faith and saying, well, God wants to tell me about himself. So I need to listen rather than <laughs> try to control and and come with my own you know, pre preconceptions and read through my own lens. Uh, and, and that way it's. It, it it yeah it it sets everything up uh, in a really interesting way. So, um, well, well, we'll end there, Doctor. Doctor, thank you so much again for your time this evening. We're really looking forward to unpacking these works with you over the next couple of months. It's going to be a ton of fun. Doctor, could you close our uh, session in prayer? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Father, we ask that you reveal your Son to us and draw us more deeply into your life through him and in the power of your most Holy Spirit. Please lead and guide us throughout this study that we are doing, that it may be truly an opportunity to, to encounter you and to know you more. We thank you for all the blessings that you have given us, and we give you all praise, glory, and honor as we say, glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers, and family members. To learn more, get involved, and support the Institute's work, visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.